0: this morning I'm hoping to remind you of the incomprehensible glory of God. Uh, I recently was reading an article by NPR where they were covering a book by a man named David Blattner called Spectrums. And in the book he tries to find out what the relationship is between the number of sands on earth to the stars that are in heaven. And he had to do some estimation, guesstimation, look to some scientists who had done some math, and found that he guesses there are some seven quintillion, 500 quadrillion grains of sand on the Earth. And you're free to check the math if you don't believe it. <laughs> but he also estimated that there are a 70,000 million, million, million stars, which, if you don't know how many zeros that is, they are just a lot more stars than sands. But stars are not the champions of numerosity. In fact, he goes on to talk about the fact that if you were to just take ten drops of water and to count the molecules in those drops of water, that there would be more molecules or as many molecules as the, the stars are in heaven. In other words, whether you look high or low, the universe that you are walking around in day by day is... Irreducibly complex and glorious and declares the majesty of your God who created you. It's amazing, so amazing that Blattner says, we really just are surrounded by vastness, high and low, and either way, we can't handle the bigotude. So the greatness of the universe can sometimes, I think, fry our circuits, and even as an individual human, as we are trying to contemplate the greatness of all that is around us, when we're trying to take in the information that complete, co- continuously bombards us through social media, we realize how finite and limited we are. We get ex- exhausted. I and mean, how many of you go home at the end of the day completely overwhelmed by everything that you have taken in, and you're like, I can't take in anymore, and how small how small a place you have in this vast universe in a moment in time, a brief moment, and yet you are overwhelmed. Does that moment of overwhelmingness give you any sense of the greatness of God that hangs it all together and keeps it sustained? Sometimes we can feel like God is too big to see us individually. I mean, we If we champion the greatness of God like the Scriptures do, it can be overwhelming, and we can begin to, as we see the greatness of God, begin to question, can a God who is so big see me who is so small? And then at other times, we're we're so complex, we begin to question if God is really big enough to help us with our circumstances or to keep His great promises to His people, Isn't that the way that we sort of fluctuate in our hearts? Oh, God, he's he's too big to care about me. And then, oh, God, he's not big enough to to deal with this. Well, We're jumping back this morning into our summer series on the, the servant section of Isaiah. And last week we saw that God had warned King Hezekiah of Judah that some of his sons and Judah would be carried off into exile because of the sins of the king and his people. But just as soon as God warns of devastation in Isaiah 39, we find that he is running with a messenger of comfort to his people living in exile in Isaiah 40. And he promises them that he himself is going to come full of glory. He's going to come as their good shepherd. He is going to carry them and he's going to rule with his mighty arm. And in Isaiah 40, 12 to 41 to 7, what we find is, is that immediately after this glorious picture of the good shepherd coming for the good of his people, we immediately are thrown into this grand view of the nature of the glory of God as the Creator, the one with whom there is no comparison. And as we look at Him and we gaze at Him, you have to ask yourself, what is Isaiah doing? Why is it that he would jump from God is going to help you in exile Two, let me remind you of the incomprehensible greatness of God. Well, we're going to find out this morning, and our big idea is this. You can write this down if you're taking notes. Our big idea is that our incomparably great Creator God strengthens His people. Our incomparably great God, Creator God, strengthens His people. Uh, we'll see this in a number of ways, but first, you'll notice. In verses 12 to 26, that there is no one like our Creator, God. Now, throughout verses 12 to 26, I, I want to just tell you two things that y- you might notice as we were listening to Arch read those verses. First, God is being highlighted as Creator of all things. We see that again and again. And second, that Isaiah asks an implicit question as he goes. Again and again, he asks Who is like our God? Who is like him? And we'll see both of these in verse 12. Notice, first we see that God created all things. And there he asked this, "'Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand "'and marked off the heavens with a span, "'enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, "'and weighted the mountains in scales and hills in a balance?' The word that he uses for measure here multiple times uh, can carry the idea of a carpenter, like with a tape measure, measuring out something as he's building. But here I believe that it's metaphorically describing something about the nature of God, his greatness, sovereignty, omnipotence, omniscience, and his omnipresence. Now, just take note of the greatness of God. Uh, we talked about last week him flexing his forearm. But here we see the size of his hand. He is cupping the oceans in it. He's using his very hand as a, a measuring cup for the oceans. That's a big hand. Now if you go to the beach this summer, and I hope you get to, take a look at the ocean and be reminded of the greatness of your God who holds the waters in his hand. doesn't say hands. Hand, singular. He is a great God. And as he's holding it, I can just imagine God looking down in that great hand and saying, oh, a whale. Almost missed it. He's a great God. He's also the God who measures the seemingly inexhaustible Heavens that some believe are ever-expanding. Those things that seem so incomprehensible to finite humans are comprehended easily by our incomprehensible creator, God. Nothing is too big for God. Nothing's too big for his measuring cup or for his measuring tape. And in verses 13 to 14, we find that God is also perfectly wise in himself. When he decided to create all things, he didn't need to go and ask an architect or uh, some kind of philosopher. He, he was wise in and of himself. You'll notice there that it's highlighting the incomprehensibility of God by asking who measures the Spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel. God measures the universe, but there is none who measures the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, you'll remember that he is hovering over the waters in Genesis 1-2 as God is creating all things. Now, this might have been important for those who were in exile in Babylon. Babylon had uh, a myth about the nature of creation where the creator god Marduk had to go and consult with Ea, the all-wise god, before he created. But no one measures our infinite God. No one tells God, how to measure. He is the one true God who is perfect in wisdom. He is not like the false gods of the nations. There is none like Yahweh. And the nations also. And their gods. We find in verses 15 to 20, they are less than nothing before God. Now that word for nations that we find there is actually a word that is often used for pagan peoples other than uh, and apart from Israel. And I'm sure the fierce nation of Babylon felt too big for God to rescue Judah from exile. In the same way that Assyria seemed too big for Israel to overcome. And Isaiah says, Behold, the nations. Nations like Assyria, like Babylon, like Persia that is to come. They are like what? A drop from a bucket. Do you see the sheer immensity of God here is meant to encourage his people. That terrifying nations, all of them together, Babylon, Assyria, Persia, Iraq, Iran, whatever nation you're fearful of, we are told here they are like a drop falling from a bucket. Compared to what? Our God who holds the oceans in his hand. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to compare a drop of water falling from a bucket with the ocean, any of the oceans of the earth, but I'm guessing that if you were to do that, you would think, I'm not sure how we're supposed to compare this stuff. Like if I look at the ocean, it's hard to see the drop. Even all of Lebanon, famed for its wealth due to its cedar trees, couldn't muster up enough Good in and of themselves in these verses to make sacrifices pleasing to the Lord. I mean, here we see a picture of how small we are in comparison to God, how our sacrifices are not received by God because they are so valuable and good, and we are so creative and rich, but because He is so merciful and gracious. Who is like our God? Verse 17 makes a lot more sense now. We find the, the nations are not just nothing, but less than nothing and emptiness. Great nations are not counted as nothing by Him, but they are create, counted as nothing before Him. In comparison to Him, there is none like Him. The nations worshiping other gods they become empty, like their gods. Humanity created was created to image God, and we become empty apart from God. We become less than nothing when we are not fulfilling our purpose of imaging the incomprehensible, glorious God who made us to make much of Him. That's why verses 18 to 20 immediately remind them of the foolishness of creating idols, of things comparable to God. Uh, These verses in, in chapter 40, verse 7, end with the idol makers making their creation and saying, it is good. No, no, God says it is good when he created all things. He is the creator. We are the creature. And yet they are acting as though they are compared to God. See, God created mankind in his image. God says mankind should not create images of the incomprehensible God according to his own imagination. But he's not done. Isaiah still is not done. He's like, I I still want you to see the greatness of God. And so in verses 25 and 26 or 21 to 24, he talks about the immensity of God, the, the, the size of God. Notice in verse 21, he's prescribing Bible memorization. He says, I want you to remember what the Bible says to help shrink your view of a shrinking God. And he says this, do you not know, do you not hear has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Now, he's not saying they were there at the foundations of the earth and he saw, they saw creation like God did. No one was there with him. No, what he's saying is, do you not remember what my word says about the nature of creation? Do you remember what I have told you in Genesis 1? In Genesis 1, it tells us what happened in the beginning when the foundations were laid. God created the heavens and the earth. The same creator sits above the earth, and people, he says in these verses, they are like what? Grasshoppers hopping around before him. And he needs to be really careful not to step on one, right? Because he's big. And God is so immense that he uses the entire universe as a tent. Now, this isn't a great place for fat jokes, but you know that if you need a really big tent, right? It means there's somebody really big sleeping in the really big tent, or a lot of people. But here, it is a universal tent that is holding in our massive God. God is so immense that he uses the entire universe as his tent. Great thing to think about this summer as you're camping. How big God's tent is. And then in verses 23 to 24, They credit God with bringing the greatest men of earth, princes and rulers, to nothing. They spring up quickly, and then God blows in divine judgment, and they disappear. Those powers, presidents, dictators, that to us seem like they will never go away, they are a brief existence in the history of God. Our holy creator God is both powerful and personal, though, in verses 25 to 26. And here's where he begins to, to start to touch down a little bit. But he doesn't do it before he spends some time in heaven. Notice what he says. He says, To whom, then, will you compare me that I should be like him? But the one that's speaking, it, it, it's interesting. It's interesting. Uh, Alec Moitier notes that the English adds the here to the Holy One, but a literal reading of verse 25 would be, Holy keeps saying, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? It's almost like it's saying that God is the personification of holiness speaking here. In this word for holy, it speaks of God's transcendence. He is wholly other. He is not like us. And it speaks of His moral perfection. There is none as good as Him. He is right in all that He does. All of His judgments are just. And what does He say in verse 26? Well, He he tells them to look up, once again, to the innumerable stars of heaven. And He says, you see those stars that Babylon worships? I made those. Our Creator God brings them out each day. It knows each star, he says, by name, and the greatness of his might is what sustains them. If he were to let go, they'd be gone. Now, this image depicts God as both powerfully sovereign and personal. Now, here's the development. Not only did he cast the stars and hold them in place, did you catch this? He knows each by name. He carries the reins of the stars of heaven, so to speak, and he knows their names so that he can actually call them individually. Now, <clears throat> this is a grand vision of God. And it really gives you perspective on who we are before a great God. Uh, I was reminded of these verses as I was watching an episode of The Twilight Zone with my, my son Jack the other day. He loves to watch the show in black and white. And, you know, it's about weird stuff happening. Um, it's probably a more formal description than that, but that's how we describe it and there's this one episode where there's this lady living alone in this house, and it's on this hill, and she's alone. It looks creepy, and all of a sudden, you know, this, there's this bump in the night, and these little miniature aliens enter her house and begin, like, zapping her with these, like, um, uh, lasers and, and prongs and different things, and, you know, she's terrified and screaming and Finally, she decides, I'm going to fight back. And she fights back, and then she runs up to the roof, and she pulls out an axe and starts hitting the UFO. And as she hits it, she hears this voice in English cry out, run, don't come to this planet. There are giants. They will kill us. And then it frames into a picture of the side of the UFO, and it says United States, uh, NASA, Armed Forces, or whatever. And you're like, wait a minute. I thought she was the one being attacked that was human, but... She was a giant killing the humans. She is really big. They are really small. And in that moment, when they came before her, they were terrified about the greatness of this being that really actually looked like her. I think that whenever you think about the nature of this text, it's kind of interesting to me. When you think about the nature of a holy God who is this great and you are like a grasshopper before him, You might think that when you need comfort while you're in exile, that might not be the first place you go. You might feel like, is the giant angry? But that's not at all what's going on here. Now, what's happening here is Isaiah wants to remind them of the immensity of a holy God that can be terrifying for an unholy people, but is completely comforting for a people who are wholly his possession. God is showing his greatness and his grandeur. And he's showing his might and his power. And he says, I am the God who is for you. And so we need to be, I think as Christians, constantly about the practice of going into God's word and not being scared to get a really big view of God that actually causes us to reshape and reform our thoughts about who He is, maybe even in ways that make us scared and uncomfortable, so that we actually worship the true God of the Bible, especially if He is for us. And for those who are in God's special covenant in Christ, we have the Spirit of God. And the knowledge of the immensity of God should actually bring about a lot of comfort and good in your life. So let me just give you five ways that I think thinking about, meditating on, looking at the scriptures for the immensity of God, the way that it should help you. Uh, Now, I found some of these in Faith in the Triune God by a Dutch theologian by the name of Petrus van Maastricht. And I want to give you five things that the knowledge of the infinity and majesty of your creator God should bring about in you. First, it makes us modest in our thoughts about divine mysteries. There are places that we go in the scriptures where we are overwhelmed by God's wisdom and not understanding why he does what he does and how he does it. There are those places. And it should cause us to be modest and humble about the way that we come to those scriptures. In fact, in Job 11, 7-9, to 9, Zophar remarks, Would you find out the depth of God? And would you reach to the perfection of the Almighty? It is higher than the highest heavens. What would you do? When we come to the scriptures, we might have questions that are not answered. Like, let's stick with what God has clearly revealed in himself rather than making stuff up. Second, it makes our infinite God worthy. It means our infinite God is worthy of his people making him great with infinite praises. Right? How how much praise do you give to an infinite God? Like, all of it. (laughs) Right? Like, you'll never exhaust God's worth and deserving of your praise. He made us for that. He made us to glorify and enjoy Him. How long? Forever. Are you worried that maybe like 10,000 years in, we'll run out of like praise juice? Not going to happen. New stuff coming all the time. He is great and greatly to be praised because He is infinite in essence, presence, duration, wisdom, power, grace, and mercy. There is none like God. Third, the infiniteness of God drives away all the ways we might think little of God or speak poorly of Him. We shrink God in our thoughts. We shrink God with our words. We don't give Him the praise and majesty and honor due His name when we speak of Him. We do not speak with the glory and praise that is due His great deeds. We do not live like our God is great beyond comparison. We need to be reminded of the greatness of God. It will correct the ways that we are living. The impetus of God humbles finite creatures it helps us not to make too much of ourselves to think woe is me i am deserving of more no god is great and we are small and everything that comes from him is good and merciful and to our benefit at our best we are but little drops from a bucket isn't it a great thing to know that the god who holds the ocean in his hand cares about the drop that falls from the bucket The evidence of God should, fifth, produce a greatness in our soul. It, It shouldn't just leave us in humility and despair, but it should actually rise in us a sense of greatness. Great is our reward in heaven. What is our reward? It is God himself living with him in his presence forever. Like, shouldn't that breathe life into your soul? God is our reward. He is infinite, and what awaits us is incalculable. But, listen closely, there is one that our friend Peter did not catch, that I believe Isaiah does in verses 27 to 31. What he wants to do, as he is giving us a grand vision of the glory of God and his infinitude and the, and the nature of all of his perfections, is this, he adds one more application of God's greatness. In fact, I believe all of this was really just prologue to verses 27 to 31, Here he says, Second, our omnipotent creator God sees and empowers his people. He sees and empowers his people. So, catch this Isaiah begins by giving exiled Judah a grand vision of God who sits enthroned above the earth. And he holds the stars in their place by his power. And he knows each one of those stars personally by name. And he makes great heroes of the earth look like crickets. And now he's ready to address the concern of his exiled people outlined in verse 27 when he says this, Why do you say, O Jacob? you catch that? I know the stars by name, and I know Jacob by name. O Jacob, and and speak, O Israel. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. I, I think this reflects two problems, one of theology and one of experience. Notice first the theological problem, They say in their heart, my way of life is hidden from God. That's a theological problem. And then an experiential problem. That's this. My right is disregarded by my God. Now, what's a theological problem? Maybe God is too great and I am too small. He can't see me from way up there. Like he needs he needs a telescope or something. He can't see me. I'm too small. I'm like a cricket, and he can't discern me from the other crickets. Or maybe my sin has caused God to actually turn his face away from me. I mean, isn't that what sent them into exile in the first place, was their sin against God? And they've just been left there, just kind of cooking. And they're like, has God forgot us on the stove? Like, is he coming back to fulfill all of those great promises? Is he coming back? God has shut Jacob off from his attention. And Jacob says, not only can't he see me, I don't think he even looks for me anymore. He can't see me to help me, and he can't see me to discipline me. That's the theology. I'm invisible before God. And then experientially, there's another problem. This results in the sense that my God disregards my prayers. I think that's the, the image that's here. Now, you can imagine their prayers. When is God going to rescue us from exile? Is God able to rescue us? I mean, we've prayed long and hard. It feels so long that we have prayed to God. We have cried out to him. I don't know if I can make it another day. It feels like my prayers are just hitting the ceilings. And there are all these other wicked people around me that are maybe like pulling me back from God coming and getting me. I mean, don't you see it? Haven't you experienced this kind of thing? You wonder, does the God who hung the stars and knows them by name remember my name? Does he, he, does he see me down here? Does he, even, does he even care? And how much more is this sense or fear that God does not hear us grow when we feel like we've made bad decisions, and maybe missed God, or, or we've sinned? Those aren't the same thing. We sin against God, and you wonder if God really is looking for us. See, mistakes and sins are not always the same, but both can result, I believe, in a sense of doubt that God is hearing us in the same way anymore. And don't miss this. A lack of a sense of God seeing our ways and hearing our prayers can cause us to run off and seek joy and hope anywhere else. I mean, when we we quit seeing God as God, we will make anything else God. And if that's you this morning, I'm guessing that's been all of us at some point there is good news in Isaiah 40 28 to 31 listen to this good news here's what he says Isaiah 40 beginning in verse 28 have you not known have you not heard they've been reading the Bible they've heard this the Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall feel exhausted, or fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Did you catch how in verse 28, Isaiah just summed up the theology he's been declaring since verse 12. He once again, he says, you remember all that stuff? Let me just give you a quick summary. God is completely other than us. There is no one like God. He is everlasting, infinite in time. He is creator, the beginning of all things. There is no end to his dominion, which extends to the ends of the earth. He also says he does not faint, a word that speaks of inner resources of strength. He never runs out of energy. Uh, God never exhausts his power. He also doesn't grow weary, which speaks of weakness caused by external forces. Nothing escapes his inexhaustible understanding. That's good theology. God is able. He, He is never exhausted of power and strength. There's never an enemy or a problem that he doesn't have resources to handle. Then in verse 29 to 31, he gives a promise to his people. The same God that upholds the stars by the power of his word gives power to the faint and strength to the weary. Did you see that? That same power, holding up stars. He looks at his people and he says, you're weak and you're faint. I've got you. I've got you with that same hand. Same hand that holds oceans, casts stars for you. You'll remember faint speaks of inner resources of strength. If the faint person does not have the resources in himself, in herself, where are they coming from? And anybody felt depleted of resources inwardly? Like every day. And if you don't become a pastor, you'll just realize how needy you really are. God. God is the one who these resources are coming from. Not inside of us, like some kind of hidden nugget of like nuclear power. No, we're, we're crying out to God, and God is sending us strength. God who does not faint or ever lack inner resources of strength, he's the one that comes to us. You have access to God in Christ, who has limited, limitless inner strength. And verse 30 shifts to a description of youths. This is a word that is speaking of young men in peak condition. You know, basically like this. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but like young men and Peak, I can't even remember Peak, but but like like this, like my sons, you know, like you're you're just things just get better and better. You remember those days? I think at this moment, Judah's probably thinking about their young men, their best warriors, their heroes who Babylon carried off really without trouble into captivity, into exile. It would have been an embarrassment. They know that. Those men with the best inner resources found themselves fainting and weary before a great enemy. Even these young men can be overcome by the circumstances of life overwhelming them from without. So where do you turn when even the best men and women are wearied and faint? Well, notice it's those who wait for the Lord that are promised that he himself will renew their strength like a a majestic eagle taking flight. They run and they don't grow weary. They walk and they do not faint. God gives strength to fly near to him above the chaos of this life. Now, he doesn't promise to remove you from the difficult circumstances. He promises to renew the strength of those who wait for God to show up in glory. In other words, he doesn't help remove you from the situation. Sometimes he does. A lot of times he doesn't. But where the strength comes is actually to help you be faithful and make it to the end through the situation. And how much more strength does it take to actually patiently work through something than to just jump out of it? This takes the strength of the Lord to be faithful in difficult things. As a child, famed evangelist John Wesley was miraculously saved from a fire in his home—complete miracle. Dad prayed; he was saved, and he was—he uh, always thought of himself as that brand plucked from the fire for the rest of his ministry. Later, he had been preaching and came across someone who informed him that his house had burned down, all of his possessions. And his response was, no, the Lord's house burned down. That means one less responsibility to me. Now, at face value, some of us are thinking like, yeah, sure, that's like ivory tower, like evangelist guy stuff. But isn't that like the theological place that we want to be able to go? Not that we don't weep and mourn over loss in this life and lament those things, but that we really see them in light of the nature of who the Lord is that that house was from God, that he is the possessor of all things, that he gave it to me, that nothing comes except from him, that he's in charge of history, like even these small moments of my life. He hasn't lost sight of me, even as this thing happened, like he is sovereign over my life. Why? Why did John respond this way? It's because he had a big view of God. His house wasn't his house, it was God's house. God's sovereign over it. He trusted his incomprehensible God. His life and his house belonged to his infinite God. He didn't say, I understand this plan, and this makes complete sense. No, he says, I trust God who's in control. Big things seem small when we see God as great. Let me ask you, when you're praying in your prayer life, what are your prayers like? Do you pray often and hard, asking God, To deliver you from difficult circumstances like my difficult job, my difficult sickness, my difficult marriage, this difficult traffic jam, or singleness. Like, I've got these difficult things and I'm just spending all of my time praying like, God, just get me out of it. Give me a solution to it. Or let me ask you another question. How much time do you spend asking for the Lord to renew your strength? So that you do not faint or grow weary in doing good to glorify God in whatever place He providentially sends you and help you to trust Him in all circumstances. I'm not saying don't pray the first thing, but I'm saying maybe we should like shift focus and spend a little more time praying for that strength to make it through. We should probably pray at least as much for renewed strength, right? Right? And, and let's not forget the measure of the renewed strength that's available to us. Maybe we're not asking for strength because we, we've forgotten like, what God actually promises that he is able to do. The powerful hand that flung the stars into heaven and holds them up still today is plenty strong enough to keep to give you strength for whatever problem has come upon you. They are drops of water before the ocean of God's love for his people. And so quickly, how does God strengthen us? Well, first, you, you must belong to Christ right Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28 I think it was mentioned earlier come to me all you who are weak and heavy laden and I will give you rest come to me with your burdens I will give you rest he will also strengthen us in fact union with Christ comes with the promise of the Holy Spirit and his help in John 17 so the Spirit comes to help us to strengthen us to lead us second pray asking God for strength uh, I'm reminded of that Quote by that great theologian MC Hammer from the 90s, right? You know what I'm talking about? We got to pray just to make it today. Like, that's true. Like, we have to pray to make it today. We need to be praying morning, noon, and night. We need to be praying through the day, asking God for strength that only He can provide. You'll remember that uh, there was another guy, David, a little bit better theologian, Psalm 139, 23 to 24. Uh, he had, in Psalm 139, been running from God's presence. And he talked about, there is nowhere I can get away from God. Not even death will separate me from God. And then he concludes in verses 23 to 24, you know what? By the Spirit of God, I don't want to run from God's presence. I want to run into it. I want him to search me and know me. And if he finds any unclean way in me, I want him to deliver me from it, and lead me away from it into the way of everlasting. That's what I want. It's a good thing to live under the gaze of an all-seeing God, trusting His Word and the Scriptures more than our own sinful dreams and longings, and bringing them them before Him on the throne of grace as you are praying. That's a good thing to do, trusting Him, wanting to be seen by Him. In fact, in Ephesians 3.16, Paul says that he bows his knees to pray that God would strengthen Christians with power through the Spirit and their inner being. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, and that includes suffering well, not being removed from it. Third, faithfulness begets faithfulness. Live unto God. You will grow strong and mature in your faith. You will be strengthened. Be faithful. Give in. Less strength. Keep being faithful. Be strengthened by God. Fourth, kill sin. We're done. And fourth, and fifth, live in a community of a local church. God strengthens each of us with spiritual gifts. Your gifts are not just for you. They're to strengthen others. And none of us are sufficient in and of ourselves. God intends us to live in community. If you are not committed yourself to a a local church and church membership, let me just encourage you. We'd love to have you come and join our church. We have a membership class coming up, I think in August. Uh, We can tell you at the the booth uh, in the back. But we would love for you to become a part of this body because you need other Christians around you, encouraging you, strengthening you so that you make it to the end. Third, the God of Israel is the God of the nations in to in 7 In verse 41.1, we find that God calls the nations to come into the context of a courtroom. He's asking for silence for the judgment that's coming. And he says this, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Now did you catch in this courtroom the, the language that's used it should remind you of something that happened just a verse before in 4031. He offers to the nations to renew their strength if they will draw near to him. That's the same promise that he gave to Israel, to Jacob, and they are invited to be joint heirs of that promise. But in verse 2 to 4, an anonymous conqueror shows up. And this guy is just mowing down enemy after enemy, seemingly without any kind of resistance at all. Now, some have identified this guy as Abraham, the kind of picture you see in Genesis 14, uh, where he kills, you know, uh, Keter Laomer, who is like killing all those giant peoples. Others have said maybe this is Cyrus, but Isaiah doesn't say, he doesn't name this guy. And I'd rather just leave him anonymous because Isaiah does. But the real question here in this text is, who stirred up the one from the east? Who stirred up that guy, whoever that guy is? Well, God did. God led the spirit of this ruler to come. He stirred him up. God already said in Isaiah 10.5 that he sent the Assyrian king as his rod to punish his people for their sins against God. And in Isaiah 4.4, God asked a follow-up question with an answer. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He. So in Isaiah 41.4, God is saying, I am the one who has done this thing, raising up this leader. I am also the one who has called the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He. That's to say that God has directed the course of history from the beginning of time, until the last event of history. He has been there for it all. He will be there at the end. And God is not only sovereign over the history of Israel. He is sovereign over the history of the world. He's not limited by geography. He's not limited by zip code. He is God of gods. There is no limit to his domain. But in verses 5-7, to seven, instead of running to Yahweh to renew their strength, notice that the nations run to do what? To make idols. They try to arouse their political heroes and encourage the idol-makers to make more idols. They see the conqueror, but they do not see the Lord behind the conqueror. And so they cling more tightly to their idols, to their politicians, to save them from God's judgment. But they do not bow before God. Now, this is really a picture of God's power, not just over the stars which he names, but over the nations. And what an encouragement to know that as crazy as things get and as out of control as things seem to be, we have an all-wise, all-powerful God who is sovereign over it all, working his purposes. Purposes that we cannot understand, that we dare not even begin to be able to understand. The Westminster Confession of Faith affirms, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Isaiah says not only did God create all things, including human history, his hand has been on the wheel all along the way as the first and the last. God, he's not a watchmaker who kind of created the world and then stepped away to leave it to its own devices. And if it runs out of a battery, that's their problem. No, this is a God who who created all things and He actively is engaged in sustaining all things. So we ought to be good citizens. Not because we believe that we will fix the world before Jesus comes back, but with the confidence that Jesus is sovereign even over bad kings. That God works for good through His people and strengthens them in bad places to bring about good even in a world that is Sinful against God. His wisdom is infinite. The God who is sovereign over creation and nations, this same God, catch this, He knows your name. He knows you, that all-powerful God who is incomprehensibly great. He knows your name, and He is for those of us who are in Christ. Isn't that good news? The God of the universe strengthens His people. In fact, when I get to Revelation one seventeen, I find a really encouraging verse about Jesus, where Jesus says, I am the first and the last. We're told there, when John saw him, he fell at his feet as though he were dead. But he laid his right hand on me. Jesus did. Can you imagine this day? And said, fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Now what we find here is is that Jesus, the one who came to die for us, eternal God who took on flesh, came to die in your and my place and was raised from the dead so that he would flex his strength to free you from the wrath of God so that you might become a child of God. And don't you know that a God who has you as his child, if he's anything like you are with your children, hopefully, I mean, if you're a good parent, You want to strengthen your child, help your child, encourage your child with all the good things. And that's what God wants to do with his kids. He wants to encourage them and strengthen them with all the good things. So we need to see this morning, I think Jesus is the incomprehensible God who took on flesh, not only to strengthen the weak, but bring the dead to life. God's son hung the stars before he took on flesh and hung on a cross for you and me. Christian, be strengthened today knowing how much your great God loves you and is for you. Not even death can separate you from that love. The strength of Christ is shown in keeping us to the end. And if you're not a Christian, put your faith in Christ today. Let me encourage you. Like If, if you've not done that, this God is not for you, he's against you. But in Christ, he is for you. Put your faith in him. Be saved from the just wrath that he has coming for all sinners who have not repented and turned to Christ. Give him the praise that's due his name. You've been robbing him of it, but he's deserving of it. And there's nothing better than to live for Christ, with Christ. Every great leader has died, but there's only one that's lived to tell about it. And there's only one that's called sinners to hope in him, and that's Jesus Christ. So if you haven't put your faith in him, put your faith in him. Seek him for hope in a dark world. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come before you, we praise you because there is none like you. You are perfect and infinite in time, in space, in presence, in wisdom, in understanding, in goodness, in judgment, in justice. Father, there is no end to your perfections. And Father, this morning we pray that you would help us as a people to take fresh hope in the fact that you're the God who strengthens his people. Lord, also help us this morning. Help those who are here who do not know Jesus as Savior and Lord, who do not know the hope of being strengthened by Him. Father, I pray that you would send conviction to their soul and their need of you and their need of your Son, Jesus, and that you would save them this morning, we pray. Amen.